Lotus is one of the most famous names in Formula One history, but the great team that took names like Clark, Fittipaldi, Andretti and Senna to greatness was a shadow of its former self by the 1990s. Its struggle to stay afloat fizzled out in 1994 when Lotus bowed out of F1 having failed to score a point in its final season. But could it have all been so different if one terrible piece of misfortune had been avoided in the final months of the team's life? To help me, Glenn Freeman, answer that on this episode of Bring Back V10s, we'll be joined by a very special guest in a moment. But for starters, let's welcome one who's a bit less special, Ed Straw. And Ed, you had to be on this episode because a team failing to score a point and then going out of existence is right up your street. So you know how these episodes start by now. 1994 was a miserable year for Lotus. But when you think back to the end of this famous team, What's the first thing that comes to mind? It's the the agonising moment. Italian Grand Prix, Johnny Herbert fourth on the grid, chance of a great result, punted by the Irvin at the first corner, out of the race with that car, magic engine, opportunity lost. Even re-watching that race today with the build-up, knowing exactly what happens, there's still that sense of disappointment. It was an amazing story, an amazing performance swing. And just such a big story at the time and and Johnny of course was F1's Mr Misfortune at at that time so it's just one of those memorable heart-sinking moments where I think every every neutral F1 fan would have would have just been so disappointed to see what happened because it could have been just such a, a wonderful story but yeah all ended by one unfortunate misjudgment. Before we bring in our special guest a quick reminder that there's still time to get your questions in for our series finale where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. Submit your question either by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or you can leave us a five-star podcast review and leave a question for us in there as well. I'm still trying to catch up with all uh, shout-outs for our recent reviewers, so thank you to F1Fan97, Ricky and Jensen, Stu Master, and Dan Reed Jazz for your reviews and kind comments. It really means a lot to us to hear how much you're all enjoying Bring Back V10s. And I'm compiling all the questions as they come in. And I can assure you we've already got too many for our doubleheader finale. Now, though, let's bring in our next guest, a man who was at the heart of Lotus in the early 1990s and someone who did all he could behind the wheel to give the team a fighting chance. The one and only Johnny Herbert. Johnny, thanks so much for coming along to Bring Back V10s. Good to be here. Hi, everybody. Now, we always kick the shows off in exactly the same way with the same question for each guest. So quite simply, when you think back to Lotus in 1994, I almost wish I didn't have to ask you this, but what's the first thing that comes into your head? Depressed, because <laughs> it was it was just tough. You know, we I got together with, with uh, Mikko and Peter Collins, Peter Wright in 91, sort of doing about half the races that season. Then through 92, great car. Then 93 with the, with the active car. And of course then, you know, hoping that 94 would be sort of a, a new start and for better things, especially when we had the Mugen Honda as well. But sadly, that that didn't really come to fruition. Yeah, well, we'll start the story off by looking at Lotus in pre-season of 94, really, because as you mentioned there, the 92 car was quite good. But by this point in 94, you're effectively preparing for the season with a C-spec of that car and with a Mugen bolted into it instead of the Cosworth that it was designed for. And that original Mugen could really be traced back to the first Honda engine that McLaren had had in sort of 89 
90 time and then it had been through Tyrrell and even footwork by this point and all the hopes were being pinned on the lighter newer engine for later in the year but during testing test driver Alex Zanardi kept talking about how overweight the car was I think at one point he said 40 kilos uh, Johnny you didn't mince your words in pre-season uh, talking about the deficit you said it's the car you could blame the engine for a one second gap but not three or four it's got no grip and it's more like a Formula Ford at the moment. Now, later in the year, team boss Peter Collins would say that nothing Lotus did with the 107C, this car, or the new 109, made much difference because of the overriding dumbbell effect of the engine being so heavy. So, Johnny, talking about the car with that engine in it, how bad was it to drive? Actually, to drive... Not really that bad. I th all I can remember it had a, an element of understeer, which generally most most had in sort of those days. But overall, balance was okay. You could sort of feel where the where the the, the grip level was from the tyres, for example. So it was quite good of trying to feel you know where you could look after the tyres in a race situation, or even building up to a qualifying lap, for example. But it was the ultimate pace that was really the fundamental problem with it. And I think a lot of that was, okay, chassis, one thing, because obviously it was an evolution of what we had in 92, but it was the aerodynamics. I think the aerodynamics were the biggest bugbear that we had that year, because whatever we seemed to do or change really didn't make that much difference to, one, the balance, but most importantly, was, was, was the speed. And I think that was where the frustrations came came from me and Alex in those in those early early parts of that season. And I think then the frustration started to build within uh, the team at the same time because there's obviously expectations that you're hoping for as a driver, as a designer, Chris Murphy obviously being part of that. And of course, Peter Collins and Peter Wright as well with all the wealth of experience that they've had. And it was quite literally as soon as we had done the first two laps, you had a feeling that it wasn't, a shift forward because we thought there was a lot of blame. I remember in 93 that it was the active part of the car that was probably its fundamental problem. But actually for me, the, the active was its, was its positive. The problem again was the aerodynamic side. We had so much drag, you know, we we're underpowered in the first place. We we're always sort of, I don't know, 80 or maybe a hundred horsepower down on the big teams. Then we've got this a massive amount of drag at the same time. So you're you're really fundamentally going to have a, a going to have an issue because whatever you do to the car, which is what has happened all in testing in early '94, nothing seems to sort of release it. It never ever really came alive. As I said, drivable, but never you never got those sort of goosebumps on the back of your neck thinking, oh, oh, this is alive, this is alive. Now I can sort of actually start to do something with it. And that's the frustrations. I remember talking to Alex about it. And he, and again, you talked about that pendulum effect that, that, that he had, that he felt. But I think when we were discussing it, yeah, that was, a, that was part of the problem. But the fundamental problem was always down to when we followed a Williams, for example, the speed differential through a mid-speed corner was just immense and that was where I always to just look at each each other and try and come up with maybe an idea that we could try and Alex was very good on the mechanical side uh you know he loved dampers uh, which was which was always something we worked very hard on on both sides but again that's a very small 
change to the car that you're you're going to get, which actually will later on will actually sort of make quite a big difference in a in a certain qualifying session. But I remember sitting with Alex and sort of saying, you know, fundamentally, you know, this is going to be a, a tough old year. And there was another big story around Lotus in the run up to the ninety four season. And uh, Johnny, that was McLaren trying to sign you. Uh, we've covered in the past that McLaren was looking for a teammate to Mika Hakkinen for ninety four which included trying to get Alain Prost to come out of retirement. But uh, Ron Dennis's attempts to sign or get in contact with you, Johnny, went down very badly with Peter Collins at Lotus. Peter said, it's irritating to have another team making clear its interest in a driver who is under contract to you. There is a correct manner in which to deal with these issues where there would be no speculation. McLaren has not acted in this manner. It has not acted correctly. Team Lotus has no intention of assisting McLaren in resolving its difficulties. Ed, I'm going to bring you in here quickly. Would this have been a good move from McLaren to reunite Johnny and Mika Hakenham? Oh, terrible choice, terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, it actually makes a lot of sense because if you look at the performance level in 92 when Johnny did the full season at Lotus alongside Mika Hakenham, it went very well. You actually had a slightly better qualifying record. I think you were ahead nine times to to seven, just over 0.1 of a percent. A slender advantage over a stunningly quick driver, especially given qualifying, certainly post your accident, wasn't your, your forte, should perhaps say. So it shows the level you were at. So it's logical, given they knew how good Mika was, that that you'd be a name they'd, they'd, they'd come down on. But of course, they were in a bit of an odd situation driver-wise. Ideally, a team like McLaren will always want a proven race winner but there wasn't really anyone available. So they had to be creative and think, right, actually, who is there on the way up who looks able to, to operate at that level and who could be available? And so you actually fitted the bill as a, as a very, very good option. So, yeah, I can see exactly why, why Johnny was a name on, on the list and I'm sure in that situation would have done a, a good job. But uh, obviously, yeah, welded to Lotus. And as we know, Martin Brundle got that drive. Uh, and when we got to the first race in Brazil... Uh, Ron was steadfast in his defence of his conduct. Uh, He said, I have, I believe, impeccable business manners. I strictly adhere to contracts and try desperately to be correct. To solve a contractual problem, there has to be a mutual agreement, whether it means money changing hands or other kinds of support. Of the drivers we've spoken to, none of what has been said in the media has come from McLaren. If teams choose to discuss approaches that we've been making, that's their business, but it's not correct. They accuse me of destabilising their situation, but I'm not saying anything. They should stop talking about it. And Rob would say later in the year that uh, he'd offered to eliminate one of Lotus's creditors if they'd released Johnny. But Peter Collins claimed that Ron never actually came up with the money. But Johnny, looking at what Ron said there about McLaren didn't make it public, Lotus did or anyone else did, does Ron have a point there? Was he actually doing everything kind of by the book? I think it, I think so. Yeah, I think there is always something you're trying to better yourself uh, as a team. Um, but then I go back the other way, and it, that's what exactly Peter was trying to do at the same time. Yeah, was he upset? But it was good sort of PR to have at the same time that someone was interested in one of their one of their drivers. So I can see he tried to use that to the maximum. And of course, Peter or both Peters, but mainly Peter Collins, were very much trying to establish themselves as you know team principles of a, of a Formula One team and a famous one at that I think the the big thing I do remember at the beginning of that season and basically the whole way through the season unfortunately was the survival pressure that was on 
Peter Collins, Peter Wright, was absolutely massive. I think they were very aware of the financial situation, but they always had, and this is where I spoke about it a bit earlier, they always had this hope that things would would get better and then when things would get better and the the uh, the track performances and the results would come their way it would then help them try and attract more sponsorship which is more money and once you get more money you can do sort of more things with that so i think peter didn't want to change his driver lineup just purely because he was happy with what he what he what he got he knew that myself and Alex would sort of give everything that we possibly would to the team. So why give me away effectively? Yeah, there would have been a little bit of financial help that would have, have been probably good for the short term, but I don't think it would have been beneficial in the long term. And I even look back now, it wouldn't have been any bit beneficial to them at all. Actually, I think it probably would have made it made it maybe even worse for them. So, so it was nice having that. I never actually had any direct contact uh, with Ron on that on that side of things, it came again at the end of '95. I think it was the end of '95, um, because he went directly to Peter to try and sort of you know do a deal with him that way. But I understand Peter, and you, as you as you know, Peter was very good for me after my accident and getting me into Benetton '89 first time around. Then I went to Japan, and it was and I was speaking to someone the other the other day about you know sort of how things work, and you always need someone who's on your side who will give you an opportunity. And when I came from Japan and I joined Lotus again during 91, who was it who gave me that chance? It was Peter Collins once again. So Peter was very important in my career. If there wasn't a Peter Collins, there wouldn't have been a Johnny Herbert and a Formula One career, that's for sure. So, so I have a lot, of, a lot of respect for what Peter did for me, but a lot of respect for what he was trying, trying to do for Lotus. You know, he had a massive passion for the sport you know he had all that sort of lovely success uh, in the early days of Benetton especially um and the passion was something that he was trying to bring back to Lotus after the sort of team Lotus uh, came to an end at the end of 1990 um and then trying to resurrect it and make it big big again but sadly that wasn't that wasn't the case so yeah it was I say it was it was just tough for everybody because you I'd heard about uh, Ron and Peter having to talk about it, but of course he never really discussed it with me, Peter. He just said, you know, nothing's changing and you're with Lotus for for the foreseeable future. There's a great picture, actually, I think, from a Lotus sort of press conference or team launch where Peter's explaining this and he looks quite angry and you're sort of behind him almost wanting to like wring his neck when he's saying you're not for sale, which I, which I quite enjoyed. But unsurprisingly, the season didn't start well with the C-Spec car that you had at the start of the year. And uh, Johnny, your quote after the second race in Aida was, that was boring and slow. Uh, then we get to Imola. And obviously the, the major incidents of that weekend are well known with the deaths of Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger. And of course, Rubens Barrichello's horrible crash on the Friday. But Lotus was involved in two of the other incidents of F1's black weekend. Firstly, Pedro Lamy smashed into JJ Leto's stalled Benetton at the start, sending debris over the four-metre-high fencing and into the grandstand, injuring spectators. And then when Michele Alberto's Minardi lost a wheel in the pits, one of the mechanics knocked over was Neil Baldry from Lotus. He was knocked out in the impact and later diagnosed with a concussion. So, Johnny, we obviously hear all the time about the big incidents of that weekend, but how was Lotus affected by the, the lower-key incidents that the team was so 
pivotal to and so involved in? Yeah, well, I think it's it's one of those situations with uh, sort of the bigger the bigger incidents that happen. Obviously, what happened with Rubens on the Friday was a was a big deal for for everybody, and of course, then with uh, Roland and of course with Ayrton. But you know, everything that was happening within our little world was you know us trying to do the best job we possibly can, and with all the struggles that we were having even at that early part of the season for something like that to happen it's it's strange sometimes how certain situations happen to people that seem to be the ones that are actually going through quite a stressful time anyway so it was it was wasn't very nice at all um, but we all got together it's one of those lo- lovely things and that's the nice memory I do have of, of Lotus at that time the relationship that everybody had from the mechanics and everybody who's sort of on the on the on the travelling side of things, but even everybody back at the factory, it was really close. There was a lot of passion, like I've said before. Lotus has always been about about passion, but everybody worked so so hard and many many extra hours of work that were you know they you know they were willing to take that sacrifice. And you know, there's a lot of lot of guys and you know guys there who had you know had families, but the sacrifice that they they put into it uh, was huge. Probably they spent more hours working on a Formula One car than they do today because you know things are completely different nowadays. You know, race weekend there were engines changed, there were 24 hour all nighters going on the whole way through a weekend, and that obviously doesn't really happen or very rarely happen nowadays. Um, but it was, yeah, that that incident itself. It was glad that it was just that concussion, as you said. But it was it was just not nice. But that was the whole weekend, and of course, then it was a little bit later that we had an incident uh, ourselves at Lotus with uh, a test at Silverstone. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, we'll get we will get to that one shortly. But things didn't get any better for F1 at the Monaco Grand Prix when Carl Wenger was seriously injured in his crash um, coming out of the tunnel. And then ahead of the Lotus 109's debut, so the new car at the Spanish Grand Prix, changes were hastily made to the F1 regulations, forcing the teams to make dramatic alterations to their cars at very short notice. The changes being enforced for the Spanish Grand Prix involved raising the front wing end plates by 10mm, removing any part of the front wing assembly that was further back than the forwardmost part of the front wheels, and chopping the diffuser so that no part of it could extend behind the centre line of the rear wheels. There was a huge backlash from the teams over this. Even though some technical directors agreed with the idea of reducing the downforce, they felt that such brutal changes at such short notice had the potential to be just as dangerous. But obviously this was a double whammy for Lotus because the team had to redesign its definitive 1994 car before it even got to race. And designer Chris Murphy said at the time that the changes meant Lotus had lost a big chunk of their completely new aerodynamics and that a lot of time and money went down the drain as a result. So I guess the first question, just looking at what Chris said there, Johnny, do you think the 109 would have been any better in its original form without the rule changes? Well, I I, I can't remember any positives (laughs) (laughs) that were coming our way that around that time at time of the season no i don't i don't think there was any any positives from 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 the driver's side because obviously the testing that we did a lot of testing in those days that we were that, that we were doing um i don't remember any time that there was suddenly a new lease of life from a particular part 
put onto the car, being it a front wing or floor, or even a change and maybe the diffuser to the rear wing. I don't, I don't remember anything that was changed. So I would probably say no. I don't think there would have been anything that would have benefited us if anything, if everything had stayed the same. No. Now, Ed, as I mentioned, there, these changes caused massive uproar amongst the teams. Do you think that the hastily enforced changes, which were handed down by Max Mosley at the time, was it too much too soon to make those sort of modifications to the car between races? Yeah, it was a little bit too quick. I've spoken to quite a few of the people involved technically at the time over the years, and the consensus is that they weren't fully thought through. I mean, how could they be? They were so fast. If you just hack bits off cars, then you're going to have problems because you haven't got time to research how you're going to compensate for it, the impact it's going to have. So all you can do is just take your hacksaw to it or your pickaxe or whatever device of choice you have for modifying cars and then see how it goes. You can do all the basics in terms of working out what it might mean for loads, etc. But by F1 standards, this is cut and shut. Okay, it was necessary to take significant action. And maybe there was an element to which you go really aggressive and then throttle back a little bit, which they they did actually on some of the ones that were announced that year. Quite a bit went through, but some they did just pull back from uh, from a few of them. But you can go too far and you can create problems by going too far too quickly, as uh, I think we're about to find out. Well, yeah, you mentioned it briefly before, Johnny. Lotus was obviously testing the new regulations, all these cut and shut changes, as Ed called it there. And you and Pedro Lamy were on track together when uh, when Pedro suffered a rear wing failure and had a massive accident at Abbey. Um, I know you were slightly behind him on the track, but talk us through what you witnessed when you uh, when you came upon the scene. Well, it was it was one of those very weird weird things that you just notice as a, as a as a driver. And as he went through Abbey, I just noticed a very slight movement from the rear end of, of Pedro's car. Didn't think much of it, to be perfectly honest, because it could have been a bump for all I know, because uh, it was still quite bumpy through Abbey or Silverstone was a little bit bumpy in places. But as, as I then went around Abbey, I then noticed underneath the bridge, which is still there today, the bridge that goes over the, um, over the circuit, and it was the only thing that was there was a, a Honda engine smoking uh, under that bridge. No bits, no sort of debris at all. So I knew obviously something had happened pretty bad, pretty badly. So as I'm sort of grinding to a halt, I'm then thinking, well, where's the monocoque? Well, the monocoque I would have thought would have been either sort of a little bit further on from the car, and it wasn't. So there was nothing there at all. So I finally stopped, jumped out the out the car, looked to the right-hand side where farm is, the farm building is on the on the right side, nothing. No marks, no scrapes, no no nothing at all. And then as I'm sort of walking down to the engine, I'm then trying to work out, well, where's the where's the chassis? Has the chassis gone over the bridge somewhere? Was it gone left or right? And then just down at the, at the corner of my eye, I noticed that the, the fence was down on the left-hand side. Um, and it was probably 20 metres of it, something like that, 30 metres of it that was down. So I then jumped over onto the onto the bank, go, went through the fence, and there was a there was a bit of suspension. I think two wheels, a front and a rear. And that was it again, nothing else. And as I walked towards where you'd actually walk around to go across the bridge, there's a little pedestrian tunnel that goes underneath. And it's like a little 180 um, small tunnel with a, with a handrail that goes down, down the middle of it. 
And just as I go past, again, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flame. And the flame was probably halfway down the tunnel, something like that. So it's a good sort of, I don't know, 30 metres down the tunnel. So I sort of then pop back and have another look again. And then the, the handrail's been taken away. I can see these scrapes. And it was a little bit like um, those minis going through that tunnel uh, in that famous film where they're sort of swinging up and down the side. Well, that was all the scrapes that I could see where further down in that tunnel, as I said, with that little fire, which was around the um, top of the petrol petrol t- cap or tank, um, was Pedro Lamy sitting in his car. And the front of the car had broken off because I think he'd gone into, if you're saying if that's the entry of the tunnel, gone in sideways. And that's where he hit the, the uh, handrail, which took off the front part of the of the monocoque and then he goes into the tunnel as well as I said and then stops so I run in and as I said it's all sort of a little bit on fire I can see the back of his helmet the paint starting to peel off and I'm going oh gee Craig if he's he's got to be alive but I'm seeing that and he's going to be frying he's cooking his brain while that's going on I think gee Craig and he's after as you said everything that's happened before so I got to the side of the car and it was really weird because he was slumped. He wasn't alert at that, that point, but his legs were on top of the monocoque that had broken off and crossed like he was sitting in a deck chair. It was the weirdest thing. And then just, I think a marshal came in. He then opened his eyes and his eyes were on absolute stalks um, when, he, when he came around. Then he was trying to get out of the car. So I'm thinking, well, I've got to keep him in the car because I don't know what damage he's done. I can see his legs are not or especially his knees not looking very, very good, but I have no idea about what's happened otherwise. So I'm sort of trying to hold him in. A a marshal comes in to then get the extinguisher to put the fire out. And as I'm saying, don't do the extinguisher into the tunnel, fire it so over the flame, but it goes out. But as I'm saying that, he just fires it off. And of course, the whole tunnel just is in a sea of white sort of powder. And of course, you can't breathe with that stuff. So I was able to sort of hobble out, take my helmet off from a balaclava and then go back in again. And of course, Pedro stuck in there with all this horrible sort of uh, fire extinguisher sort of dust. And then he was still still alert. And then every everything sort of calmed down. Then the smoke had already started to go out of the tunnel. The flame had already gone out. And then everybody started to turn up. But it was just one of those weird experiences when you initially see it but you're actually not seeing much because there's actually not much of it about because it had all sort of gone in all different directions. And it was basically where the rear diffuser was cut off, like you were saying, around the uh, the drive shaft, centre of the drive shaft or centre of the wheels. Um, there were four bolts that were at the bottom of the, of the rear wing. And that was the only thing that was the structure of holding that wing on. And because of the, the diffuser had gone, there was probably more load having to go through that wing on its own because it had the support of all the diffuser and all the other little bits that were there. And because of that, two of the, I think the most rearward bolts sheared. And what I saw was that wing dropping. And that's that's what happened to him. So of course, when it drops, he's got no downfalls. He has a spin and when he goes backwards, it takes off. And that shoots him off through the fencing and unbelievably through the through that tunnel. But for him to, you know, to come out of it alive is one one amazing thing. Um, 
but it's great that he, you know, he had a career not in F1, but in, in sports cars and Le Mans, the Nordschleife, winning the Nordschleife a couple of times, I think. Uh, but Pedro never changed. By the time he'd got taken to the hospital and by the time we'd obviously sort of uh, stopped stopped uh, testing for that day, I went to the hospital and he'd already chatted up one of the English nurses. So he was fine. <laughs> smooth man, smooth man. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's remarkable. Like you say, Johnny, that tunnel is still there. And even now, when I go to mm. Silverstone, I look at that tunnel and I think, you can't work out the logistics. <laughs> how, how on earth did that happen? Even, you know, that's that's the most detailed description of that accident yeah. I've, ever, I've ever heard. And But it's still, it's still miraculous. So, yeah, anyone who's listening, the next time you go to Silverstone for the British Grand Prix or anything else, yeah. The tunnel is there as it was there next to what used to be Bridge Corner. And yeah, remember what Johnny's just said there and then look at the size of the of the tunnel that Pedro... Yeah, that's the amazing thing. It's very, very small. And how it fitted almost perfectly down there is un- unbelievable. That's actually kind of the forgotten crash of that period yes. Of, yes. of crashes because there's no... Fo- well, no public photos. Nobody saw it except for pretty much you seeing the aftermath and what and what Peugeot experienced of it and I remember really struggling to get my head around it at the time what had actually happened and even going to Silverstone after and looking at the tunnel and just it just begins belief that 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 accident could have happened and actually that he got out out of it it's um, I mean obviously still serious injuries but considering the circumstances I imagine had you had much time to think about it while you were looking for him you'd have probably feared the worst yeah. at that point yeah no well exactly that's the first thing you thought that's it the one thing that's very annoying about it nowadays is i've been through my big accident that i've had he's been through his big accident the damn swine can still run faster than i can <laughs> so, i've even lost that one <laughs> so I'm, sh- I'm sure you could outrun me if you need to so if you if you wouldn't it wouldn't last very long maybe we'd be both of us we both be on the floor <laughs> But it was that whole month, wasn't it, you two, that just was unbelievable from that first incident we had with Rubens to the race, the qualifying, the race itself, the wheel with one of my mechanics, of course, then with Carl Wendlinger and everything else, and then Pedro as well. Just just unbelievable that it would all happen in a short space of space of time. But, you know, we benefited from it, I suppose, in, in the longer run. But I think you're right, Ed, there was a lot of things changed that shouldn't have been changed as, as hastily as they were. Certain things, okay, maybe a little bit, the front wing end plate being a bit high, sure, but I think the whole rear diffuser part, I think, was a was an over-hasty thing to do. Yeah, with no time to test it, really, or anything like that. But you mentioned the the way the rear wing failed, and um, Autosport magazine reported around the time that several teams had problems like that. So Williams, Ligier, Minardi, and Pacific had all reported cracks or failures when testing with the new rules and Lotus released a statement making it clear that they felt the new rules imposed by Max Mosley were the result of what caused Pedro's accident. Max Mosley fired back at those claims saying the accident was caused by the team failing to properly adapt their car and he added if they didn't have time to do it properly they shouldn't have run the car. It's an elementary engineering job to make sure the car is safe. Peter Collins wasn't impressed with that, saying Mosley obviously wasn't in possession of all the facts when he made that statement. Now, Ed, this was a very politically charged time in F1. 
Do you think Max was being overly harsh here to blame Lotus, especially against the backdrop of all these other teams having similar problems? Well, Max Mosley always knew very clearly what he was saying from a, a legal perspective, wasn't he? I mean, he, he's right in that a team is responsible for making the car safe. That's certainly true. That's the number one responsibility when you send someone out in a in a race car. But Lotus was responding to something that was forced from the outside. It wasn't they just decided to do something or not check it or whatever. They were forced to do it and had to do it quickly. You can, you can do your basic maths on measuring loads, etc. But this is all dynamic forces and vibrations. And, you know, it's a proven rear wing support they were using. So they knew it worked. But things had changed for supplementary reasons, should we say. So it's not a simple thing. You have to measure the interaction. They didn't have a full car dyno or dynamic rig or something just to sort of stick it on and, and check like Mercedes would probably be able to do uh, today. Lotus just wasn't in that position to do it. And I doubt any team could have done it to that level. Okay, your Williamses and McLarens would have had a bit more to, to go on. And what else are they supposed to do? Do they want to run that car for the first time on a weekend and have that failure when there's spectators wandering around trackside? <laughs> of course you don't. So it's probably a good thing they didn't just hit and hope on a on a Grand Prix weekend. I'm sure in retrospect, there are things that, that the guys at Lotus will have looked back on and said, oh, actually, maybe we could have done this or that or the other just in case. Because there always are, no matter who you are. You can always do things better when you've learned. But the responsibility lies with making those sudden changes. That's clearly the case. And there was no lack of technical directors and designers at the time warning this would happen. So they'd warned it would happen. It did happen. It happened to be Pedro Lamy and Lotus. It could have been Johnny 10 seconds later. It could have been a Pacific driver, Bertrand Gasher or someone. But yeah, it was going to happen to someone. It's just unfortunate that it happened to Pedro in that way at a point where it was so horrendous a, a crash but just thankful that the, the consequences weren't even worse how was that received in lotus johnny i can't imagine the guys appreciated max suggesting that they'd not done their due diligence before sending the car out no well again we all look back now and sort of say yeah maybe they could have you know looked at things in a in a more scientific way you know but you you look back to that 94 season with us we didn't even have a wind tunnel so we have we're, all this stuff, you know, the seven post rigs that they have nowadays, you know, they have so much more information and tools to be able to sort of look at these, these things, uh, finer things. And we didn't have that, that ability. And it was thrown off, from what I remember, it was thrown off us, on us very, very quickly. And we didn't have much time to adapt the car before we actually were at that test at Silverstone. So you're always going to sort of have a little bit of a, a look at what's needed to be changed on the car. But it's like I said, it had four big, I don't know if they're eight millimeter or 10 millimeter bolts that were holding on the rear, the rear wing. And they'd never, ever been a problem uh, in the past. And of course, Silverstone is, is quite different to many of the other tracks that we go to. You've got the high speeds, the high loads. It's quite bumpy, like I said, uh, as well. And it's all those different inputs that put, particular stresses on particular parts of the car and of course when you've when you've changed the car as dramatically as as they had at that time of course logically looking back just because we know what happened it was something that the stress is obviously going to be the wing is going to be here you've got then that sort of down support you've got those bolts on the bottom it's going to be at that bottom part that the stress is going to come in but as i said it's been able to sort of have that ability i think to to test to test all those stresses like they do today. And we didn't have any of that, you know, crack testing, I think back back then was a very basic thing, even on a suspension part or even a, a monocoque, for example. So, you know, things have moved on so, so much now 
where they're able to find absolute, pretty much absolutely every sort of negative weak part of a car and they're able to sort of you know fix it before they get onto the track didn't have those 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 um, tools then the lotus 109 made its race debut at the spanish grand prix although only one car was ready so only johnny got to race it the 109 featured shorter side pods heavily revised front aero and better ergonomics in the cockpit Chris Murphy said the basic package has a lot of development in it and we shall bring several changes over the season. It's good to have a car with which we can play and improve. And while Johnny did outqualify Alex Zanardi by 1.3 seconds, that was still only good enough for 22nd on the grid. And you did spin out of the race while running 10th, having complained that the car was twitchy throughout. So race weekend debut for the new car. Did it feel like... As Chris Murphy said there, there was a base to work with or was it not even that good? Uh, it, well, you didn't feel it when we were in the cockpit at all. It was just that snap, snappy rear end that we that we were feeling, or not feeling, I should say, through, through the corners. And it was not just at sort of a mid-speed, high speed. It seemed to be just everywhere you've got a sort, certain amount of yaw on the car, a little bit of sort of side load, that this sort of snap, came into effect. So initially, I think it was, well, we thought it may have been down to sort of a, a more of a basic damper sort of chain, mechanical sort of issue. But I think fundamentally, I think we learned a little bit later on that it was the aerodynamic side that was just that little bit more on edge. I don't, I, again, I don't remember as, as gaining much raw speed from the change. All we seemed to gain was just a, a harder car to... To drive, so the ergonomics that you you mentioned were not very useful <laughs> in the cockpit whatsoever. So again, it was just that horrible frustration. I know Barcelona is quite a particular tricky track anyway, and it's always one of those circuits that everybody says if you get a car to work there, it'll pretty much work everywhere. Uh, so when you go there and a car doesn't work, you know it's going to be a bit of a bit of a tough one through the rest of the season. But it was just that that sort of snap that you were getting, which just becomes such a, a difficult thing to, to control because like Alex said at the beginning of the season with sort of the, the the Honda engine being a little bit sort of weighty as well, that that doesn't aid a snappy, a snappy car either. So it was sort of two things that were working against each other and it just made it that much more difficult. But I do remember feeling a little bit, again, low, uh, as the weekend went, you know, was going through because we just weren't any better off than what we were, what we were before. Yeah, and results didn't improve over the following races. And talking of low points, uh, we got to the summer and the British Grand Prix, uh, you've said, was one of the more miserable weekends. Because in your book, uh, Johnny, you said that by this point of the season, no one from the media was even coming to talk to you unless it was to sniff around rumours of Lotus's financial problems. And by now you felt that even Peter Collins was avoiding you because you were always asking him when the car was going to be better. And you said that Lotus actually by this point was a very lonely place for you. And it's amazing to think that this is only a year before you'd be winning the British Grand Prix. But I'm guessing that in 1994, it probably didn't feel very special to be racing on home turf. No, and I think that was... That was sort of the the sort of fundamental issue that we all had when we went through the gates of Silverstone, because obviously you got Silverstone with all the the history that it's got, 
we're turning up in a, in a Lotus Formula One car, the British Grand Prix, with a lot of history uh, as well. And then we get onto the track and then we're absolutely struggling at the rear end of the field. And that's not what we all wanted, you know, from, from Peter, as I said before, from Peter's sort of wanting the the goodness of, of Lotus to sort of come back for his drive to try and make that, that to happen. And I have to say he did work massively hard to try and achieve it. And unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't work out. But it was frustrating even with my mechanics. I remember where we, you know, that was hard for them because they put a lot of long hours in thinking that maybe there is this sort of chance that everything will come alive, especially when we had that new car in, in Spain. But it, it wasn't to be, and it was just they made it more frustrating for everybody. So I think even me, maybe I was wrong when I look back. You know, I was very negative at that time on the team and where we were and where we where what direction we were supposed to be going in. But I just didn't see that there was any chance of that happening. So that that, that type of thing probably didn't help at the end of the day. But then I was very frustrated as well. You know, I was in a position where I didn't want to be. Uh, nor did anybody else, to be on, to be honest, in the team. And I remember, you know, we were talking about um, the difficulties of, you know, me uh, and Peter Collins. And I remember doing a letter to Peter Collins actually that year and asked him to to let me go. But uh, he said no to that one, which was probably understandable at the time. But then that's where you get those feelings of where you're not working together and like you said about me and Peter yeah it broke down a little bit it wasn't super bad because I always had the utmost respect for what Peter had done for me and it just grew into a massive frustration but I think it was a massive frustration for them as well because you know everything was just not looking rosy and the finances were pretty much on Peter's desk every time he went into the office once I'd finished my my race I'd go home and you know my my desk was uncluttered I just had the problem of sort of having a, a heavy paperweight maybe on my desk, but he had the whole financial situation there every single day. And even when he went home, it was probably still there as well. So it was a horrible, probably a horrible time for, for Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And for everyone in the team, as, as you outlined yeah. there. Now, Ed, it's easy for us on the outside to almost forget that behind the stories of that we would report as underperformance from from Lotus tr- trundling around at the back there are these human stories behind that do you think that sometimes gets forgotten by those of us that aren't inside and feeling it as it's going on yeah it can be easily done ultimately what is a, a Grand Prix team but it's a group of people isn't it I mean for all the cars and technology etc it is a group of people working towards something and in a situation like Lotus is in many teams have been sadly in that situation where you don't know where it's all going you don't see a, a kind of future almost so you're just sort of battling just hoping something will turn around but not really being able to see a reason to do it I guess there's sort of slithers of it get out there to those watching and those on the outside. Obviously, in in Johnny's case at this period, you were kind of Mr. Bad Luck in F1, weren't you? You were you were the guy who always seemed to finish seventh, one place outside the points, or you'd have a mechanical failure, and obviously everyone knew the story of the accident in, in three thousand. So 
people kind of got an inkling of that. But then again, that's just for kind of an hour and a half when they're watching on Sunday afternoon or maybe reading a bit about autosport. Whereas obviously in your position specifically, you're a an on-the-up driver. So there's a career element as well. Plus you've got the, the weight of the expectation of the team on your shoulder. You're trying to get the results even though you haven't got the kit to uh, to to do it. So it has an impact on on kind of everyone because it, it just has to... In any situation like that, you have to feel like there's some direction. There just there just wasn't, as we as we will get on to. So we have to remember what Formula One teams are and how tough it must be for for anyone to know they're in that situation, especially when you're getting jobs involved. And by this time, I'm sure people are worried about their future employment. It's not just carrying on for a few years doing badly. It's do you have a job, whether that's Johnny having a job in Formula One as a driver or mechanics and people putting food on the table. You know that those worries. There's very, very few people in the world who don't have those worries, and it gets magnified massively by those those unpleasant situations. Yeah, and Ed, I think it was one thing for me that made it quite noticeable that there was a fundamental big problem within the team, was obviously, including myself, there were six drivers during that season. You know, we had so many changes through that year. Luckily, I was the one who was who was open to stay in the cockpit. But, you know, Alex was changed and Pedro came on and Eric Barnard a little bit later, Philip Adams when he did his, his racing spa, I think it was. And, you know, there was just so much scraping to survive. And we were needing these this extra bit of cash to make it sort of happen. You know, the guy the guy I feel sorry for in many respects, although he was the guy that was supposed to be giving us the guys, Chris Murphy, because he was a great guy. He gave us, you know, the the original 107 in 92, great little car it was, gave us a, a good chance of of getting some uh, some good points. And then of course then uh, over the year it sort of didn't quite happen. But everybody, if you if you don't know Chris, he's a great character, really good sense of humor, very intelligent man, very sort of uh, knowledgeable of what's going on. Worked with Adrian Newey, I think, in the March, the March times. And uh again, it was frustrating frustrating for him at the same time. But I think with all the tools that the other teams had, you know, who who did have a wind tunnel. As I said before, we didn't have that ability to have have a wind tunnel. And I think there wasn't that, from what I remember, not, not that much aerodynamic wind tunnel work. And the one thing, and I can't remember if this is 94, I really can't remember, but I do remember 93, it was still there. I think they used to go to Mara uh, with a Corvette with a tow rope and it was attached to the car and that towed around the car, around the circuit as fast as that um, Corvette could go. That was our wind tunnel work. And that's where things were very, very different. It may have been a little bit earlier than that, but it was 92, 93 for sure. Could have been 94. And that's just where things are so, so different. So, you know, and that's where you sort of look at a modern day Formula One team. You know, that would be laughed upon nowadays if that happened. But that's all we had. And that was the only way we were able to try and find some gain aerodynamically through the car. But it was never going to happen because there was obviously something in front of the main event that was going to create not exactly maybe it was better in a in a in a in a, in a race situation behind traffic <laughs> because that was exactly what we did but pure speed it was never going to be there but things were way different back then so it's it's that's where you know things were that much more difficult for everybody but you were still up against the mclarens and the and the ferraris and of course the williamses you did have a wind time okay maybe it was only a 60 
70 odd percent but they had it and it worked and they were able to sort of produce the cars that did win races and world championships yeah, and you mentioned there that lotus was chopping and changing drivers which is always a sign of a team scraping around for a bit of money and it was actually around silverstone that the financial problems started to come to light in public because Lotus was given a court ruling that ordered it to pay £2.1 million that it owed to Cosworth for using its engines before the Mugen switch. Uh, Peter Collins rejected any suggestions that Lotus was in financial trouble and there was also talk that an offer from Tom Walkinshaw to buy the team had been rejected. But when Lotus went into administration later in the year, which is a spoiler alert for our listeners, um, the administrator said that when they were looking back at the finances through the season, by the end of July, the team's debts had already run to several million pounds. So, Ed, uh, we were discussing earlier with Johnny how small F1 budgets were back then. So looking at a two million pound bill to Cosworth for a team of Lotus's size running around at the back of the grid, how substantial is that kind of debt to have on your books? Yeah, very substantial. Is it 10, 15 percent of the budget? maybe a little bit more for that year. So, yeah, it's just an enormous amount. And obviously, Cosworth was just the headline name in terms of the, the creditors. So who knows how much the total amount was. And that's for paying for last year. So you haven't got enough money to run this year. You've still got last year to pay for. How the hell are you going to have anything for next year? That's that's the, the big problem. So it just paints a picture of a team that was in that downward spiral financially. And when you've got a company like Cosworth, which obviously knew Formula One very well and... Cosworth was was usually relatively compliant when it came to payments and that kind of thing. It would it would be willing to come up with kind of settlements on terms of structuring payments and that kind of thing. But when Cosworth's pushing at you that much, you know that there's something very badly wrong, and it it just exposes the team as well because it's such a public thing. It's not it's no longer private. So yeah, you're beginning to build up this kind of towards this critical mass of financial problems that eventually would be very 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 damaging. So Silverstone was a low point, but uh, so was the Hungarian Grand Prix just a month later. And uh, Johnny, in an interview with Motorsport magazine at the end of 94, looking back at the year, you actually said Hungary was the lowest point. And uh, I can see why, because researching this episode, uh, at the time, after qualifying 24th, you called the car undrivable and a bucket of shit. Uh, reflecting on at the end of the year, you said by this point you had no motivation at all. You didn't even want to get in the car. You were dreading going to each race and you didn't feel like anything mattered because you weren't going anywhere. And you said, I was supposed to be the happy-go-lucky Johnny Herbert, but if I was going around with a dull face, then I was the spoilt brat who was complaining just because he hasn't got a good car. Now, we briefly mentioned earlier, Johnny, your career had been through so many low points by this stage, from the 3000 accident, getting dropped by Benetton, we recently looked back at Canada 91, where you made your comeback and then failed to qualify. You'd always been able to pull yourself through those moments. But when you've taken so many hits, by the middle of 94, are you starting to think that this might be one fight back too many? Well, in some regard, yes. But I suppose I knew I had to find a way out because it was the only way that it, I was going to be able to sort of further my my career, you know, I have that dream of winning a world championship, which I look back and think, well, that probably wasn't really on the cards. But you always have that dream, win races and, and win a world championship, something you you dream of as a, as a young kid. So I just wanted to go into a team that at least I would have a chance of 
of getting some some decent results because I hadn't got a podium at that point. We'd got close, I think, in Brazil uh, the end of 93, I think it was. And is it 93? Could be 94, but 93 for sure. Um, and it was something that didn't happen, but wasn't going to happen. You know, we had that great car in 92. It was lovely to have that battle with Mika. It was great that the sort of the risk that he took going and being the test driver at McLaren, then having that brilliant uh, race in, uh, or the or the qualifying in, in Portugal against Ayrton Senna and, and, and beating him there. Um, and then Ayrton woke up in the race <laughs> and beat Mika quite convincingly. But it, but that's where Mika, you know, showed he was getting stronger and stronger as a character. And that's, that's always something that I think you... You see, the greats are always able to sort of start their careers, do very, very good. But when they have that opportunity of winning a world championship, they still grow. They still get better. And that's something that I think we saw from Mika. So anyway, I digress a little bit. But it was hungry. Yes, you're right. It was the, 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 the worst I'd ever felt in a racing car because I just felt that there was no almost no point driving the car because it was never, ever going to give you anything back. It was never actually giving you any fun back. You know, even when we had a, a bad car, I remember the 102 before we went to the 107, the 102 that myself and Mick had in 91 and early 1992. wasn't a particularly fast car, but it was damn fun to drive in, in the wet. It was actually quite good in the wet. It's a good little wet car. Um, and it wasn't bad to drive in a race situation. You could really give it everything, but it actually would give you something back. And then by this point in 94, you were sort of, whatever you did, it was so easy. I mean, so easy to overdrive it because the, the level was so low and trying to sort of basically get your mind and rewinding it to slow everything down. So you would actually be faster in a lap was quite a, a frustrating, difficult thing to do. And, and hungry, as you, as you said, that was the worst. I didn't want to get in the car on Sunday. And I remember being back at the hotel on Saturday night, probably drinking a little bit more than I should do, because I was I was absolutely sure I wasn't going to get in the car on Sunday. Convinced myself I wasn't going to drive a car because I didn't see the, the point of doing it. But then on Sunday morning, typical racing driver, head came on, said, no, no, no. I want to, I want to, I will drive. <laughs> I will drive. But I was adamant on Saturday night. I was not going to drive that car on Sunday. And it's a shame. I look back and it's awful that you get to those situations. And you're right. It's something that can come across, you know, a bit of a sport, brat. You're in a Formula One car, for Christ's sake. But it's frustrating when you're just not getting the fun factor. There's got to be a fun factor if it's football or golf or cricket or whatever it may be or whatever you choose in life as, as a job. There's got to be an element of fun with it. And I just wasn't, I wasn't getting anything from it. It was just being sort of ripped out of my, ripped out of my soul. And it was, it was horrible because obviously, like I said before, there's all the people that were working so hard to just get the car onto the grid itself. And there's Peter, I know, working hard to try and sort of pay off that debt that was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's a lot of people that you're going to affect at the same time, but then you've got to have an element, which I think you'll 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 get from racing drivers. It's got to be a little bit, bit of selfishness that comes into place. Because there's got to be something. It's about you as well. You know, we're in the modern age that we've got. There's very much a sort of we win together, we lose together. 
but there's got to be an element of the selfishness from a driver who is able to sort of do something like we saw maybe with Sebastian Vettel with Mark, Mark Webber in Malaysia. There's got to be an element of, of selfishness to, to, to win a world championship. And that's something that I felt that, you know, I, I was someone who they trusted, who they wanted. I remember my mechanics, they were very, very loyal to me the whole way through it. But the frustrations are there for, for everybody. So, you know, Hungary was one of those down ones. It gets slightly better, I suppose. A little bit later on. Yeah, we're not too far away from a, a bit a bit of good news uh, rather than just dragging you through the mire. But so much of this unhappiness was tied to the fact that you were stuck in that contract uh, that you talked about. So the team had a tight grip on you. And in September, Autosport magazine... Did... That was my fault, Glenn, as well. That was my fault because I remember in 90, I think it was 92, uh, we had sort of the cashful, cashful money that was there. Um Peter was sort of in a really good place at that time, but I was sort of a very important part of that sort of journey that he was on. Uh, Guy Edwards, obviously, was someone who was that cash He was very good at getting some some of the budget involved or a lot of the budget involved. And I remember they were sort of saying, you know, well, we want to do a long-term contract. And I remember even my wife and a friend of mine, James, uh, were saying, don't do it, don't do it. But because I had this, I don't know, feeling of, the thankfulness for what Peter had done. And I was in a situation, I think, well, it's not looking that bad, actually, you know, during this 92 season. But I did a long-term contract and I was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. I was weak on that one. And that's a frustration that that I still look back on because it put me in that situation, to be perfectly honest. And I wasn't able to, to get out of it because obviously it was a, a concrete uh, contract that I had. So, so is it partly my fault? My fault. <laughs> Partly my fault. Always listen to your wife. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. She was right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in this feature that All Sport did, they talked to you and Peter about the contractual situation. And Peter said that um, he told you when you tried to get out of the contract, he said, I've paid you for three years. You haven't brought a penny to the team. You can't expect me to just let you go, even if I'd like to see you going well in a McLaren. I've got shareholders and sponsors who have invested on the back of you being in the team. I can't just drop them and let you go because it suits you. You talked about it at the time as well. And you said that you felt by the middle of 94, you'd paid back your debt to Peter for all the things he'd done for you. And you said the last two years haven't been brilliant, but I've done my best. I think I've paid my due. Now, Ed, how how to repay someone's loyalty is an incredibly hard thing to judge. But do you, does there come a point where it is reasonable perhaps in Johnny's position, to say the debt has been repaid and that he couldn't just be in Peter's debt forever because he looked out for him in the early stages of his F1 career. Yeah, loyalty owed or earned. It's not something you can just put into a spreadsheet and get the answer, is it? So it is a personal thing and it can <laughs> conflict with other objectives. But from what I know of this situation, you've got, I mean, as Johnny said, he signed a very long-term deal, probably one that he shouldn't have done, partly out of loyalty, to have the team built around him sponsorship was part of that but obviously the sponsorship wasn't forthcoming so you can't blame the driver for seeing which way the team was going I guess you also can't blame Peter Collins for wanting to hang on to his his prize asset because basically there's two courses of action either you you try and hang on to your effectively lead driver as Johnny was in terms of performance or you have to cash in and, and sell the contract to someone those are your two options so 
there's slightly competing kind of agendas there. And when you get into these really crunch situations, you've got a driver's career at stake, which ultimately it was because all of this led to the opportunities that allowed Johnny to become a Grand Prix winner. Who knows what would have happened had that pathway not not opened up. You, you never know. Um, so, yeah, really, really difficult. You can't, you can't blame the team boss for what he did in Peter Collins' situation. And, you know... Johnny served his time with Lotus, didn't he, over several years, and it was going the wrong way. If the team was in a reasonable situation, as you said, in 93, and maybe the results were kind of decent and you were picking up sort of fifth, sixth, fourth places here and there, you could say that perhaps you owed that loyalty over trying to jump into a team that was currently a better point, but not when the team's on a hiding to nothing, which it which it was by this stage. And I think, I just imagine it's just one of those very uncomfortable situations personally where there's a bigger picture that conflicts with personal uh, personal loyalties and that kind of thing. I guess everyone encounters that sort of thing in their lives, but probably not quite as publicly as this particular situation. And it was after the nadir of Hungary that Lotus finally got its hands on the new Mugen Honda engine for a test at Silverstone. The car instantly came alive. Johnny ended the test 1.4 seconds down on Michael Schumacher's Benetton and only nine tenths slower than Damon Hill's Williams. And at the time, Johnny, you said the old car was ridiculous. You had to get your balls and hang them on the mirrors just to get a 1 minute 31 out of it. I don't think God himself could have cracked a 1 minute 30. But with the new engine, a 1 minute 28.5 came pretty easily. And apparently you told Peter that there was easily another half a second in it because you were driving like a plonker because the car felt so different. The engine was slated for its race debut at Monza. And at this point, Johnny, you uh, you gave Peter some rare 1994 praise because you said he'd pushed hard to bring the debut forward from Suzuka at the end, towards the end of the year to getting it in for Monza. So when you drove the car with a new engine at that first test, was it was it a light switch moment? And did you think, right, finally, we've got something that can turn our season around? Yeah, well, I probably wouldn't say a light switch, but I'd say a positive uh, because it had made a big difference to how the car was reacting. The the drivability of the engine, to be honest, was was probably the biggest improvement that we had. We did have more horsepower as well with that drivability, as I said, and it did did work quite quite well. And then I remember when we sort of were on our way to to Monza, we were in probably in a much better mental situation going there. But I do remember in the in the free practices that we had, it, it was going okay, it was better, but it wasn't sort of a big leap in performances. But the one thing that, and this is something that will come up as we go through this, is where we worked very hard. I remember John Miles, lovely John Miles, who, um, who had been an F1 driver with Lotus in the early 70s, but he was very much working with Lotus cars. And I met John, I think 91, 92 at Hethel on the Lotus test track. And we had Sid. And whoever, people who don't know who Sid is, well, Sid was the Lotus Esprit active suspension car that John had developed. And he got myself and Mika in the driving seat. And John would have this sort of very sort of old blocky computer thing sat in his lap. And we would basically drive around the circuit at Heffel and he would change the settings. So he put more bump into, into the car itself. And then he would just try and ask us, what have I changed? And then he'd do another little change, we'd give an answer, and then he'd sort of tick it off. And both myself and Mick, as I said, would do that. And we learned a lot from that because that was just one thing that you could do 
instantaneously, which in a Formula One car, of course, you've got to come in, do the change, go out, conditions sometimes change quite dramatically during a during a test. So it's a little bit harder to feel it. So it was a really good thing for us to do it. But John stayed and joined or joined the team. And at Monza that time, he was very, very much working to get the car better. And damping was his his little baby. And he'd stripped, I remember stripped them all sort of down, I think even on the, the Thursday night, getting ready for, for the Friday. And as we were going through the weekend, um, as I said, it wasn't it wasn't a big move in performance, but it was better. And then by the end of, I think it was the, uh, the free practice we had on the, the Saturday, we started to um, put, I've got to get this right, I think it was rebound, we were reducing the rebound. We were reducing, I'm sure we were reducing the rebound. And the main thing I was having going into the Ascari chicane just as one, was always a little brown, there was always a bump before you turned in. And it was just always a little bit nervous under the braking. And every time we did it, it just improved. So I said, okay, let's do it some more, do it some more, do it some more. So we ended the session looking pretty, pretty okay, to be honest, top 10-ish, there, there or thereabouts. And then we went into qualifying itself and we we carried on doing that same change and it just got better and better and better. And the car just seemed to sort of come alive and it did what I wanted it to do, or actually it actually was doing it before I even thought about it sometimes. It was just reacting beautifully from that point of view. We had the, the new engine in, as you've said. So that combined into a car that you could push very very hard um when he went into a qualifying and then suddenly from nowhere we're sort of at the back of the pack for most of it we get this wonderful fourth place and it's just it's just even for me it's unbelievable i remember i did this typical me stupid thing on eurosport worth doing the tv at the, t- at the time and they came up to interview me after qualifying and i was so happy with the situation that we were in oh, god uh, God knows why I was doing it, but as they're trying to interview me, I'm going. I'm doing this <laughs> just because just I'm happy <laughs> that it's gone so well. Um, and it's the weird thing of that of that weekend. It was brilliant because that was the first time that we'd we'd basically had the financial people um, turning up for a Grand Prix. And they were just monitoring what was going on. I hadn't taken control of it, I think, at that at that point in time, if I'm correct. If they got through that weekend and there was a result and then there was a chance of being able to sort of improve the performances, which would then improve their situation financially, um, they were able, they were letting it sort of go. But we did qualify, fourth, brilliant, absolutely. You know, everybody's, you know, ecstatic with what's going on. We go back to the hotel and it's just happy, 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 great mood, great mood. We do the warm-up on, as you did in those days, had a half an hour warm-up. And we were on a one-stop fuel. So a lot of fuel on it. The Ferraris and the Williams were on two stops. And I remember we were we were going round and I'm looking at the times and it was, I think it was Damon. I was three tenths slower than Damon in the in the free practice and I'm thinking I've got I've got tons of fuel in the car and the car's just responding absolutely perfectly from from the braking which is obviously low downforce and everything else um 
and but the, the stability that I've got is just absolutely fantastic. And then anyway, so we, I'm thinking right, one stop for me. They can do their two stops. That's no problem at all. I'm happy with what I've got. And then prepared the car, got onto the grid. I'm doing my final sort of mental. Uh, things that I did beforehand, putting every, all the sort of fluids in my body that I possibly could could get. And it was must have been pff, 10 minutes before the start, something like that, 15 minutes before the start. I've got, I was, oh, in those days, I used to get in the cockpit and stay in the cockpit. Then we used to jump out. Uh, and Peter popped his head and he said, yeah, we've been having a look through. Because in those days, you didn't have any computers that would sort of analyse what strategy you were doing. It was sometimes quite literally... Yeah, let's do a two. <laughs> so it's quite different. But they'd sort of gone through everything somehow. And they were saying, and Peter said to me, sorry, that we've decided that actually, so you can sort of keep pace with the others, we're going to do a two-stop. <laughs> and I went, what? What? We did a two-stop? Why are you doing a two-stop? The one-stop, we were fantastic. We were three-tenths lower the day, but with all that fuel that we had, but it was too late to change everything so then the start happens obviously and then eddie's has a cracking start in the jordan and then we touch and then i get spun off going into turn one so we will never know because i couldn't get the car fixed uh before the the restart so i had to start in the pit lane with the old the older car that alex uh, zanardi had um so we're so we're sort of never know even if the two stop <laughs> would have worked in my in my and still today in my heart i still think if i'd done a one stop i would have won that won that race in Monza. Still feel that today. But it was just one of those weekends that somehow you found the right change and just, you know, in damping. Amazing how, how, how powerful damping can be sometimes. It's very, very different nowadays with the way that the sort of the damping is set up now. But, you know, we had that opportunity and the car come alive and get the fourth place. And then unfortunately, you know, we didn't actually see what it could have could have done. Yeah, I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make Ed analyze a fictional race in a minute to work out where you would have finished. But <laughs> you mentioned Zanardi there, um, and yeah, he had the old engine, not because there weren't enough engines, but because it required a new gearbox design, and Lotus didn't have any extra gearboxes. But Zanardi was still going better with the old engine. His average starting position in '94 up to that point had been 22nd, but this weekend at his home race, he was 13th. 1.8 seconds off of Jean Alesi's pole. However, Alex claims in his book that the data showed if he'd had the new engine, uh, he could have been on pole. I'm not sure about the maths here because he claimed that the engine was worth half a second uh, and he was 1.3 slower than Johnny. But he felt he was making up somehow enough time in the corners, particularly the Lesmos and Ascari, that he could have beaten Alacy's time with the new engine. Johnny, you're uh, making all kinds of facial expressions at the moment. Have you heard that theory before? Uh, yes, uh, from that very book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was very good, I remember, on the first sector. And I think there was only, I think there was only a couple of hundred. I really can't remember. There was a couple of hundreds different, but he was faster than me strangely enough, on that first sector, but not on the second or third. There was a big disparity when it when it came down to that. So the interesting thing, I'm going to try and, I don't know if you're going to allow me to move it on, and then it would sort of come round again, because, as you said, my, my car did fantastic. 
I had the new engine in, in the car. Alex had the old engine, old car, but it was the best performance that we had done in that car, in that configuration for the whole season. So we were still thinking, well, well whatever, the car has come alive suddenly. Um, we go to the next race, which is uh, Portugal, if I remember correctly. Um, <clears throat> qualified, I think, about 22nd, 23rd, something like that, maybe 24th, absolutely nowhere. There was a four-day test after. I remember, and this is where I, it starts to do this again, <laughs> unfortunately. We're thrashing around for three and a half days. It's about three and a half days, if I remember correctly. We're trying different things, and it's not reacting again, and it's not alive. We're a good few seconds off the pace. Try, try, try. Next day, try something else. Nothing. There's a few little bits and bobs that that turn on, turn up. Nothing sort of happens. So on the last day, I remember we're going absolutely nowhere. I'm thinking this is just back to where we were before we went to Monza. And that was only a race a race ago. So I said, let's just do something completely stupid because it was sort of mid mid high downforce Portugal. Let's put Monza wings on it, just see what we do, you know, see what happens. I said, well, you can't put Monza wings around this circuit because this circuit it won't, it won't suit that car. To I said, yes, but just let's go back to what we had in when the car was quick and let's just see what, what happens. And there was a bit of sort of, I don't know, an hour's chatter about, you know, well, are we going to do it? Aren't we going to do it? I said, it's not going to interfere with any program. We've done basically our program and we're lost with what the program that we're on at the present time. So... We put Monza wings on it, went out. I remember thinking it was quite quick in a straight line, as you, as you would expect it to be. But it was probably, probably as well, you could carry more speed through the corners, but you had the extra speed down the straight. I think I went something like one and a half seconds faster, maybe more, I can't remember, maybe, maybe more. Uh, one and a half seconds faster than what we were doing with the previous setup that we've got. So when I go back to Monza, and it happened later on, and I don't know, I don't find Mick and Mick Asala was another driver that joined, obviously, later on in the season. And I think they used it in Suzuka. I'm not sure. I did hear that that happened. So you go back to Monza, for whatever reason, that package worked in Monza. It was better when we went to it in, uh, in Estoril for the test. But that was the only thing that worked. The rest of the high downfalls just was not efficient. It was just, it was super draggy. Plus it was just not producing the downfalls that it got. But as soon as you put this configuration on, it, it came alive. And it was sort of where it should have been, but it, it actually wasn't where it should have been because it should have had more downfalls with that sort of wing setup that, that, that we put on. So it just worked in Monza. And that was why we had that sort of brilliant performance because we got the next race, we're absolutely nowhere. And then I think even after that, Hareth uh, was the same sort of situation um, for Eric Bernard, Bernard and, and uh, the guys in there. And then, of course, Mika was in uh, Japan for the, for the end of the season. And it didn't, it didn't happen uh, again. So it's just weird that it just suited, and this was the whole thing, it suited Monza. But it wasn't just the engine. There's a lot of talk that it was the engine, but it wasn't because it never worked over anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. It's very sad, very frustrating. 
Yeah, and obviously the ultimate frustration around Monza, as you mentioned, is uh, the involvement of Eddie Irvine, who, uh, like you, Eddie had made a good start, and you're turning, you're approaching the first chicane, basically in third place because you've got yeah, the jump. On, yeah, you've got to jump on on Damon, um, and then Eddie's quite far behind you, locks up. And just rams in into the back of you. The car, your car, spins round. You then get run over by David Coulthard across the front. The race is red flagged, but your car's too badly damaged to take the restart. So you're in the spare, which, due to the lack of gearboxes we mentioned earlier, means you're on the old engine. So Ed, I know you you watched this race last night in preparation for for this chat. Irvine's explanation at the time was that Johnny braked earlier than Eddie was expecting. Is that just one of those things that can happen at the start at Monza or is this careless from Irvine? Yeah, I, th- I think Johnny's braking was perfectly appropriate for the uh, the first lap of, of, <laughs> of the race. <laughs> uh, this kind of thing can happen. So I can see why it happens. I mean, I've raced at Monza and I was expecting the first chicane to be a, a car park and still had the battle on my hands to get the, the car stopped. But then it, I knew you were going to bring that but, up. But, <laughs> the difference is, I was a fat amateur racing driver, not a professional Formula One driver. So you expect a slightly higher standard. But ultimately, yeah, Eddie had made a really good start. And he just got caught out. He didn't factor in cold brakes, cold tyres, the fact that inevitably you're backed up a bit because there's cars around you. So it's never going to be a kind of normal lap into the first corner. So it was a it was a careless error rather than any malice or or misadventure. So I imagine that once the dust had settled... Maybe that took a few years. Johnny will probably see it as a just one of those stupid mistakes that shouldn't happen. But there's no there's no side to it. He wasn't trying to launch a move. He just got caught out, and it just had massive consequences for the for the race and for uh, and for Lotus. Sure, Eddie still blames me. <laughs> he hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> but Johnny, how how did you feel when you when you're sat there? You're facing the wrong way. David Coulthard has just jumped over the front of your car. Do you have, do you even have the time at that moment to to have that sinking, crushing feeling at that very moment that everything could be lost here for Lotus? Or is there just too much going on at that point that you don't really process any of the sort of wider picture? No, as soon as the car starts to rotate, you know, it's, it's, it's a negative. And as soon as the car is stopped and then you get DC running over the suspension, you're thinking, well, this is this is it, it's gone. But then you're just seeing the, you know, the train of cars pass you and you know it's basically over. But then you get that notification that there's a red. The race is stopped. So then you think, well, now I've possibly got a second chance at it. Most of my career has been sort of second chances. Maybe. <laughs> so maybe I thought this was that opportunity. And they tried their hardest to get that car prepared it was so close of getting the car actually back on the back on the on the track um okay it would have been from the pit lane anyway. oh no it would have been okay if we got it got it together but at the end of the day it wasn't to be and then we had to do that that late swap uh to the to the older car but as soon as then you, when you knew that was going to happen you knew it wasn't going to be anywhere near as high performance as what you had in the other car so it would have been a frustrating frustrating race it only lasted what 15 laps or something like that it didn't last very long once again but um it's one of those races i look back and it's just if you know if, if we'd if we if we'd only had a chance just to see what we could have done and i still think even with the two stop we still would have been very good 
because we would have still have had the pace in, in you know to to uh, to keep up with them, but probably still be faster. You still got to overtake them, obviously. But I think you know we had a car that could have won a race. It's just unbelievable that the the difficulties that the team was having to get this sudden surge of speed and energy within the team and everything else, then for it to be sort of snatched away as well, you know, we're never, never know, you know, could it have made Lotus survive the rest of that season? Although, like I said, it didn't go so well for the next, or for the rest of the season, especially the next, the next race in Portugal, then you would have thought, well, it probably wouldn't have been enough because it would have been one race. But if it was a race win, it doesn't matter. It's a race win. It's a Grand Prix uh, victory. So it probably, probably would have helped it survive. But just unfortunate. Damn you, Eddie. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I just wish there was a chance that you could sort of rerun it and then the form that, you know, we went into that into that first corner without anything happening and then just see what happens. I'd have been third. Uh on that first lap and then who would have known what would have happened after that but frustrated because it's just one of those races that you think it got away yeah well let's put ed to the test then ed you analyze f1 races today very closely so give us the 1994 italian grand prix that never was johnny says he would have won the race where do you think he would have ended up is this one stop or two stop ed <laughs> <laughs> well that's the, that's the key question uh, I absolutely share with you the concern at the switch to two stop because one stop seemed the the obvious way to go. And if you look at what happened, in the end, Berger and Helen Coulthard all ended up one stopping. Lacey seemed to be on a two stop strategy because he stopped a bit earlier. So you're third behind the two Ferraris, assuming you survive the, the original start. Lacey will be out of the way because he retires. So it's kind of that group. It's Berger and the two Williamses and you, really. So even on the two stopper, there, there should be a a fairly straightforward fourth place there. You can never quite tell how it'll pan out with traffic, but Hackenham was about 20 seconds behind Berger, something like that. And assuming all those things happen, because although Hill jumped Berger, that was more Berger falling behind Hill because he had a bit of a slow stop and I think there was a Ligier parked in his way. So who knows? If it was a one-stop, you could have been the one who ended up leading after that after that stop, assuming reliability, assuming the race pace was as good as uh, as you feel it was and assuming you didn't chuck it off the road which obviously there's a small chance of with any with any driver so yeah it's it's very very plausible I suspect the two stopper probably means it would have been that kind of third fourth place maybe you'd have passed DC when he went out of fuel <laughs> parabolica on the last lap to pick up yeah. to pick up that podium but yeah everything kind of in terms of the numbers on the outside so that actually a, yeah. a win on a one yeah. stop wouldn't have been certainly not out of the question not not as not as ridiculous as it might sound on paper because that car was was very very quick plus of course there was no Schumacher in a Benetton which simplified the uh, the battle at the front more so I can see why that one even not to have if you'd had five laps in the first stint and then the engine had blown up or something at least you could have looked at it and said well if it held together we had the pace and we could have done but it, it must be one of those frustrating unanswered questions that you can never quite be sure what it cost yeah, and without having anything to sort of analyse, I remember after that that warm up, and then obviously being told that sort of uh, two stop on the grid. The main thing, without knowing anything, would have been well, if we're doing two stop, and the others we feel are going to do a two stop, we're only going to be doing the same as them. So we're just doing follow it's follow my leader type thing. That's where the one stop performance wise looked good, 
And then you're doing something different at the same time. And that's where you can capitalize on that. And I always thought race wise, that was something I was always quite good at with the tires and everything else, et cetera. So it was one of those, it was a strange call from sort of both Peter's side, why they felt the two would have been more beneficial when it would just been follow a leader type thing as I, as I saw it. The proof of just how close to the brink Lotus was by this point became clear the very next day because on the Monday after the Italian Grand Prix, the team applied to go into administration. Peter Collins said this was to protect the company's position in light of the activities of certain individuals and companies and the objective is to give Lotus breathing space to assure that there is no attack from creditors or aggressive parties. The professional advice we have is uh, that this is the most responsible thing to do. And he said he was very optimistic Lotus would survive and race on into 1995. Johnny, when did you hear about the team going into administration? Did anyone tell you on that Sunday night at Monza or did you just find out on the Monday? Well, as I said, there was sort of some financial people there at Monza uh, and it was those very same people that uh, took it over basically on that Monday. So the administrators were already basically on the ground looking uh, at what was needed to be done for obviously all the sort of the debt that the the, the company had. So, so I was aware of it basically going into Monza and I knew, I think we all knew how important it was to get a result out of it. And then there was that positivity that it was probably going to be a better result than we would ever it would have expected. And of course, then it all got taken away. So as soon as it didn't happen, we knew Monday was going to be a bit of a tough one. Yeah, and you, you said in your book that by the time you get to Estoril, you said the administrators were strutting around like peacocks uh, and treat, treating <laughs> everybody like naughty school children. But you've you've described what happened at Estoril and that subsequent test and putting the, the Monza wings on. And in your book, you say, although we hadn't meant to, what we'd actually done was bring an end to Team Lotus. What did you mean by that? Was it just the emphatic proof that the team was lost when it came to designing a Formula One car at this point? Yeah, uh, I think sadly that was exactly what I was trying to say. And it was it was awful that, you know, that, as I said, that test, we were just lost. No one knew what to do and, you know, how to dig ourselves out of it. Every time we tried to dig ourselves out, it just went downwards rather than sort of on top of the pile that was that was being put there. So it never ended up having a sort of stepping stone or a direction for it. And that's why I said with, you know, the way that Chris Murphy, you know, great guy, but it, it just didn't seem to be there for the design team. It's horrible to say the design team because they done so well over, over you know, a couple of years before, but it just didn't have what was needed to influence that sort of change. And, you know, you mentioned that test at Silverstone. It was positive, but it still wasn't a, a leap forward and all we changed was an engine, effectively. That's all, all, all we had done. It was a bit lighter, yes, had a bit more power, but we're not, we're not talking of 100 horsepower or something or other. It was about 30 30 horsepower, something like that. It wasn't massive. It could have been maximum of 40, but that was it. And then the real cracks appeared in that in that test. And that is where then you're sort of going, well, if, if this is what we've got to do to suddenly make this thing work, then we are, we are, we are totally lost. And that's just where you, you, there is no chance, especially at the latter point of the season, no chance it's going gonna, gonna to sort of have a sudden turnaround. So very, very sad, very frustrating 
I think, for everybody there. And I think a lot of people in the paddock as well, of course, with the history that Lotus had had at, at the same time. So I think there was a lot of sort of, you know, sad faces just knowing that when those administrators turned up, that was that, that was it. Yeah, Lotus meant a lot to a lot of people. And when I was a kid, I had a, a black cat that we called Lotus uh, just because that was the name you had to go for. But <laughs> that test at Estoril brought an end to your time with Lotus because on the following Tuesday, Tom Walkinshaw did a deal with the administrators to buy out your contract, which was one of the few remaining assets of any value to the team. That made you a Ligier driver. And the very next day before heading to Jerez, uh, you tested for Ligier at Manicor, I believe, which was unbeknown to Lotus and was unbeknown to the driver you were replacing, Eric Bernard. At the time, Johnny, you called the move a major step up because I wasn't going anywhere. So just before we let you go, we really appreciate how much time you've given us to discuss what was a very difficult season for you. But how happy were you to get out of Lotus at this point? And once you were gone, did you pay much attention to their fate over the remaining weeks and months of their existence? Or did you need to clear your mind of Lotus at that point because it had been so difficult? No, well, of course, I still had close relationships with people that, that were there. And even with, with Peter, I still had a, you know, a close relationship, respect for, for the guy. Um, so I wanted them to do as well as they possibly could. But, of course, the focus was obviously more on what I was trying to do from a, from a career perspective. And Tom was, you know, Tom, Tom was a, a tough cookie. Like you said, it all sort of happened on a Tuesday. And I think that Tuesday night, and I'm sure it was something like 10 o'clock, I got the call to sort of say, right, okay, you've been now bought out of the contract. And I was in near Stratford-upon-Avon, where I still am at the moment. And Tom said, right, you need to come to, and he's got his house used to be just outside Endstone, where the TWR JAG team was uh, was based. And I got to, he told me, I've got to come tonight to sign the contract. So I did get, I got there about 12, 12.30, I think, at night to sort of sit down and so signed this contract. And then the next day we flew off to uh, to Manicor to do a, a test on the sort of the little short circuit that they have there. And then, of course, then it was down straight down to Jerez. So it happened, yeah, really, really fast. But that was just typical Tom. That was just the way Tom was always very clever of how he wanted to sort of improve his his team, which was obviously the Ligier, the relationship he had, obviously, with Benetton and Flavio as well. Um, and it was sort of one thing that was a cheap way of getting a um, an okay driver, I guess, sort of into <laughs> into his car. So, you know, it was really a relief, I suppose, a big relief. But I knew I was getting into a different car that was more competitive um, up against Olivia Panis, of course. Um, so I knew that was obviously going to be a tough one, but it all went very well from out qualifying him and out racing him at the same time. And of course, then it jumped. And that, that was where I was never aware. So I was aware of I was going to drive a Ligier and we were testing in Barcelona after the after Jerez. And I turned up, flew out, turned up, walked into the Ligier garage and they sort of said, no, 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 you're not driving. You're driving down the road to the Benetton. It was only Benetton and Ligier doing the testing. So that was the only time classically with Flav where it didn't even tell me that I was I was driving his car. So so and then that was lovely as well. And then sort of it went the test went well. Uh, pretty close to Michael, I remember in the test. And we had the horrible uh, chicane at the top of uh what was it turn nine. Um 
And uh, yeah, and then obviously it was down to Japan for for the first race of Benetton. So it was a quick sort of yeah, Lotus Leger Benetton <laughs> in three races. So relief, big relief. Um, but I felt it felt guilty, but I felt bad that I'd sort of left him in that position. But as we discussed, it was a position that wasn't going anywhere. And then it was obviously at the end of the season that was it. It all uh, all folded. Very sad. You must also have a unique place in F1 history. You're the only driver who's turned up, walked into the garage to be told you're not driving for a team. And it actually, to be, oh no, you're not driving for us. Go and drive for the championship leading team instead. Yeah, go drive for the championship only drive. Yeah. Normally that's bad news for you, like you won the lottery. <laughs> it was, it was. Uh... <laughs> Thank you so much, Johnny, for, for coming and talking about, like Pleasure. I say, such a difficult season i feel like i feel like we owe you one in a way and we'll have to talk about one of your victories next time and, and get you back in the future just so we can talk about some more positive stories oh no, there's still dark times in there as well <laughs> <laughs> uh, one man comes to mind yeah. <laughs> massive thanks there to johnny for sharing his stories from what wasn't a particularly happy time in his career as we discussed though it did work out and he quite quickly found himself in a front-running Benetton, and in 1995, he took two victories, which seemed a fitting reward for all the hardship he'd been through up to that point. But, Ed, as we mentioned, it was Tom Walkinshaw that plucked Johnny out of Lotus and bought the contract, and Walkinshaw was linked a few times in 94 to buying Lotus. Every, every time it came up, the team denied it, and actually at the Belgian Grand Prix, there was some talk from the team where they didn't so much reject the notion of Walkinshaw buying team. They just pointed out that he hadn't actually made an offer. So I always wondered if that was kind of a, a come and get us if you're really serious type statement. But do you think Walkinshaw could have been a good man to take over and possibly save Lotus? Well, in terms of motorsport knowledge and capacity to run teams, Tom Walkinshaw would be an outstanding owner. But of course, Tom Walkinshaw was never the person who bought the team and poured in endless amounts of money he always had to bring in the money to do it so from that perspective while it would be a, a new person with a lot of connections and people he could have brought in it's not necessarily going to guarantee that it would work in terms of the finances as in fact would be proved by arrows in the future he kept that going and there were some great ambitions for a while but eventually it, it ran out of ran out of steam so provided he wanted to buy the team to actually operate it rather than just take the Mugen Honda engines and stick them in the Ligier or something, which is a slightly different kettle of fish, a very, very credible buyer. But it doesn't sound like it was uh, a very advanced discussion if anything was talked about. I imagine he probably took one look at the situation of the team financially and thought, hmm, a lot of debts with that, don't like that. And from here, the Lotus story doesn't get any better. Before the final two races of the year, the administrators gave an update to the courts on how things were progressing and Lotus was granted permission to take part in the Japanese and Australian Grand Prix. Just before the Japanese GP, Lotus was rumoured to have been bought by a secret buyer. The rumours were of a consortium being fronted by David Hunt, the brother of 1976 world champion James, but the administrators were not allowed to name the owner as a condition of the sale. Over the Japanese Grand Prix weekend, it was revealed that the new owner was American businessman and former racing driver Sam Brown, who was a Lotus enthusiast. Peter Collins was kept on, at least temporarily, as team manager, but he was only an employee now and not involved with the new buyers in any way. He said he'd be willing to stay on if he felt the ownership had the right attitude, motives and objectives. 
But we never heard again of Sam Brown in the Lotus context, other than an update from the administrators to Autosport magazine, where they said he was still in negotiations over buying the team, but he never did. So, Ed, we've seen this story before with many a troubled F1 team, I think. The story of a mysterious owner uh, circling a dying F1 team. It doesn't tend to ever work out too well, does it? Yeah, there's no shortage of people who'd like to own a, a Formula One team. And Sam Brown did have some racing pedigree. So he was credible from that perspective. And he, he does have business pedigree as well. So presumably a, a credible person. But obviously it never actually went through. Whether, again... <laughs> He had a look at it and realised how bad it was because it's one thing to take over a team. It's another thing to take over a team and in that situation clear a load of debt. So you never really know until you start this process just how much you're going to have to sink in to, to get the books to balance before you can you can move on. And, and sometimes it's people who think they've got a chance to get a Grand Prix team to get started and then make money off it down the line. But when you've got into a situation where you're so far gone, you're in administration and in trouble with all these debts, it's very, very hard to have someone to, to kickstart it again, which is why so many teams never emerge from administration. Often those that do, there tends to be a plan in place already for what may or may not happen once they're in that situation. So yeah, standard, standard death throes of an F1 team. And after the 94 season finished, Lotus lost its Mugen engine deal for 95 due to missing payments. And sure enough, that deal was snapped up by Tom Walkinshaw for Ligier. So perhaps he got what he wanted all along. In mid-December, David Hunt bought the team himself for half a million pounds. Hunt didn't have the money to keep the team running, so his job was to find investors. Explaining how this happened, Hunt said, I was involved initially on behalf of other investors, but when the position to buy came around, it seemed there was a lot of hot air and not much else. In a way, it was an emotional decision to become involved myself because I couldn't bear to see the team die. It's not obituary time as far as I'm concerned. It's my neck and my money on the line and I'm a fighter. I don't necessarily plan to make this my business life. If someone wants to buy the whole lot, I won't be a dog in the manger. The first thing Hunt did was to lay off the staff before Christmas, but he said that was a temporary measure to avoid taking on debt. He also ceased work on the 1995 car to minimise overheads and claimed that Lotus now had a clean balance sheet and was in its best position since 1990. So, Ed, what do you make of Hunt taking over the team and what he did when uh, when he took control? Was he just trying to keep the team alive a little bit longer, perhaps in the hope that he could then sell it on himself? I'm sure there was a desire to own it and, and run it, but it's obvious from what he said that he was trying to find backers to buy into it and, and kind of head up a consortium, as it were. So again, it's the usual thing, didn't have the money to do it. So I don't think he necessarily would have seen it as a quick buy and then flip it for a profit. Probably would have seen it wouldn't have been that straightforward. But again, just, did, just didn't have the resources to do it. And it all comes down to that, doesn't it? If you've got the money, it's an existing Formula One team, it's got cars, it could run the following year and keep going. But you've not only got to have the money to do that, First, you've got to clear all the debts. So the same old circle. And as soon as someone gets involved, they realise it's not really a very good investment. And that's probably why David Hunt, speaking to all these potential investors who he thought were going to be there when it came down to it, the deal did not appeal to them. People being interested in spending money is not a rare thing. People actually spending that kind of money, much, much harder. And sure enough, in January, Hunt had to pull the plug entirely. Lotus's headcount was down from 88 when he took over to 55 when he made a decision to shut the team down with a statement saying, 
funding that was contractually due had not arrived. We've talked about Peter Collins a lot on this episode, and his daughter Samantha wrote about the end of the team in a blog post in 2015. She said about Hunt taking over, David's intentions for the team were exactly what my father and Peter Wright wanted to avoid. He lacked the understanding of the legacy of the real Team Lotus, and ultimately it caused the team to come to a very unbefitting and sad end. Hunt did do a deal before the 95 season to partner up with backmarker team Pacific. And while a handful of Lotus staff moved over, it was not a joint venture by any means. And Hunt even said at the time, it is very important that it's understood this is not team Lotus. It's a Pacific design and a Pacific car. We haven't contributed anything other than green paint. Pacific said the tie up carried commercial benefits and it and that it generated more coverage from being Pacific Team Lotus than it got throughout 1994, although that probably wasn't that hard given how rarely Pacific qualified in 94. So, Ed, we know this partnership doesn't go anywhere, and by the end of 95, Pacific were out of F1 anyway. Did Samantha Collins sum it up best, perhaps, when she said this was an unbefitting end for a team as great as Lotus once was? Yeah, it's certainly that. It's a magnificent and legendary race team. I don't think there is a fitting end for teams like this, is there? They they should just go on and on and on. What else can they do? They, I guess they can win a championship and close in glory or something, but that just doesn't happen. I mean, this was a culmination of a, a process that had been going on for a long time, hadn't it? That said, it wasn't that long ago that it had a Honda Works engine deal and was actually winning races with with Senna as late as as 87. But the team had just gone into this decline. It was much preferable that it ended this way than the way the Lotus name ultimately did in F1 with all the rather unseemly resurrections of the name that we had a decade ago. With uh, Yeah, we're not going to talk about those. <laughs> uh, Lotus teams, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll save that one for, well, never, should we say. It was boring enough to live through at the time, I think, in that regard, <laughs> despite the luster of the name. But yeah, Lotus had just run its course. They were, they, I think they were good intentions of people involved. Certainly, Peter Collins had the the greatest of intentions with this team and and did great things to try and keep it going but just there wasn't the money there and I'm, I'm sure David Hunt tried to as well it, it just wasn't to be and once you get into these death throes it's a real hit and hope for something to happen you you need an absolute miracle to come in from somewhere you need a you need to win one of the world's more substantial lotteries to have a chance or just someone suddenly to to catch the eye. So by this stage, it, it was all gone and it, it's fiddling around the edges. And yeah, that, that Pacific Team Lotus 95 season is, is quite a an odd little amusing footnote. I, I quite enjoy it, actually. Yeah, of course um, you do. And I do like the 95 Pacific. It's a nice looking car. So uh, uh, anyway, it wasn't, wasn't so quick. But yeah, just it, it's a, a sad end. But there's there's no such thing as not a sad end for these teams is there you think of what Lotus achieved everything and yeah it, this trajectory though it was on for some time and throughout 94 it was clear that, that the end was rapidly approaching if something didn't happen so that's it that's the end of team Lotus and uh, as we mentioned there don't get us started on the two teams that ended up carrying that name uh, around a decade ago thanks again to Johnny Herbert for joining us to revisit this story in such great detail Thanks to Ed as well, particularly for that Italian Grand Prix uh, analysis. That was very enjoyable. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by leaving us a five-star review if you think we deserve it. Time is running out to make the cut for the end of the series, so if you've got a question in mind, don't hesitate. Before then, we still have two more regular episodes to come in this series, 
And next week, we're covering a topic where I will be completely impartial. We're taking a trip back to 1997 to look back at how the title was decided at Jerez. <laughs>